Well, good morning all and happy Father's Day to you. Uh, my name is, thank you, someone said it back to me. Thank you. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm a, I'm a pastor on staff here. It's great to be here this morning. And uh, believe it or not, if, if you've been here for a while, we are on the last message of our, of our time in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is crazy. We started this back in January, believe it or not. And uh, we are in chapter 16, the final chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if, go ahead, actually, if you brought a Bible with you, turn to chapter 16 now. Um, to, we'll, we'll dive in there in just a minute. And if you remember, we called this series, actually it's up here, uh, we called this series a beautiful mess. The, the, the church is this beautiful mess. And uh, if you think back on all that we've learned since January from this book, and you, I know you can't remember every single point, it's okay, just admit it. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, you don't remember what we say, that's fine. But if we learned anything about this church in Corinth, it's that it was a total mess, right? This church is a mess, seriously. It's a wreck. I mean, no church is perfect, you'll hear that said, but this church, wow, <laughs> it's a doozy. Divisions, drunkenness, classism, prostitution, incest. Remember we had a whole sermon on incest? That was fun, right? Do you want, this week I was thinking about this, do you wonder if Paul, he's, he's in the middle of this letter back to Corinth and he's dictating this, someone's writing it down. Do you ever wonder if he just stopped in the middle of this and said, wait, 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 wait. stop writing. Why, why am I even bothering? <laughs> Does this, is this going to do anything? And, and if we, if I were Paul and I'd gotten this letter and this report about this church, so he's responding to a letter from them, all these problems, they don't, they don't even like him anyway. Wouldn't you at least consider abandoning ship, right, if you're Paul? Like, send a letter back saying, listen, I, thanks for your thoughts here. Uh, this was a great try, but we are, we are shutting this thing down. It's over. We're done. <laughs> Go home. And frankly, if you've been a part of a, a church for a while, really any church, including this one, you may have, you may have at times, to, to a greater or lesser extent, felt something like that. Wouldn't it be easier to walk away than to deal with this problem or this issue or this person or when my pastor does something I disagree with. Come on now, be honest, right? It happens. Just a few weeks ago, as we were in the middle of this letter, several families came up to me and several of us on staff and just shared some of the spiritual abuse they've suffered at the hands of the church in their past and how hard it is for them to trust the church again. And I can't blame them. I get it. Sometimes church can be the worst. We've, we've read about one. Or even if you haven't gone to church, you're new to this whole church thing. Um, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. It takes guts to come to church for the first time or, or to visit a new church for the first time. But, but maybe you're, that's you right now and everything inside you is just like, get me out of here. These people are weird. They're crazy. <laughs> they sing songs together. It's bizarre. Like you, it would be so much easier for you uh, to just get up and leave, right? But I, it's too late now. I would see you now. You can't anymore, but I, I get it. <laughs> whatever reasons, however, that we can come up with, whatever reasons we have had in the past for giving up on this whole church thing, Paul had more, much more to be frustrated about with this Corinthian church. But Paul does not give up. Now, if you read his final thoughts here in chapter 16, and that, that's why we didn't read it together, it's, it's, it is his, it's his final thoughts. Um, 
kind of a, a random group of, this is just a random group of things. This isn't an essay after all, it's a letter and it's very specific to this church. It's kind of meandering, but if you read this final chapter, and it, it may not all make sense to you, but one thing I think is abundantly clear. Paul is not giving up. This church may be uh, an absolute mess, but for Paul, it's so worth it. It's worth the effort, the letters, the tears, the visits, the arguments, the pain, the hurt, all of it. It's worth it to him. Paul is convinced despite everything this church has done and will continue to do, read 2 Corinthians, this is all worth it. God is still in this. God is still working in this church. It's a mess, but it's worth it. And I think if he were here today, I don't know this, but I think if he were here today and and we were just to list everything that frustrates us about our church experience, whatever that's looked like to him, I think he would just nod along. Yep, mm mm-hmm, yep, I get that, got that. I've been there, done that. And at the end of our rant, I think he would look us in the eye and say, I know it's a mess. I get it, trust me, I get it, but it's worth it. And specifically, what I want to talk about this morning is just three ways the church is worth it. Three ways that if we keep investing in the church, these three ways, it's worth it. Paul's modeling these three things for us in chapter 16 today. So if you haven't turned there yet, again, turn there, chapter 16. And the first way that the church is worth it, the church is worth working for. It's worth working for. The church, for all her flaws, is worth working for. So just listen, uh, just listen with that lens in mind. Listen to all the activity. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 16. Listen to all the activity in some of these verses. I'm going to start in verse 5. So Paul says, I'll visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go next. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but it But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see to it that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. So be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now let's stop there for a second. It's easy to read verses like these and kind of skip over them and miss the fact that what Paul is describing here is telling two things. Number one, it's telling an incredible story of what God is doing in and through his church in the ancient world. Incredible story. And number two, It also represents, it's a snapshot into the incredible work and sacrifice that Paul is putting into the church. So first of all, Paul is writing these words, the letter of 1 Corinthians, uh, on what we call his third missionary journey. He did three big circuits around the Roman Empire. They're called his missionary journeys in in the course of his ministry. And uh, we know this from the book of Acts which records all three. And Luke, Luke uh, wrote the book of Acts. He's, a, he's an historian. He, he was also a companion of Paul for some of these journeys. He, he records these very precisely uh, there in the book of Acts. Long before Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, God was using his ministry to literally change the world. 
Paul's planting churches in urban centers over the Roman Empire, and the church is exploding. And historians of all stripes, whether Christian believer or not, uh, will acknowledge that Paul's work, even, even if you don't consider it supernatural, his work changed the Western world forever. Forever. Greco-Roman culture, henceforth, all the way up to the history of the United States, is traced back to Paul's missionary effort and work for the church described in the Bible. And now thousands of years later, after Paul, even as the Western world, people talk about the Western world, you know, is trying to move on from the church in many ways, the global East and South, the church is exploding once again. Paul is still working for the church by God's grace throughout the world. So when Paul here pauses to talk about his itinerary for the coming year, I, I, this struck me this week, to stop and give thanks for his plans to God. Without stuff like this, we would not be here today. But anyway, Paul writes this letter here on his third and final missionary journey, and I wanted to give you a peek at what that looked like, uh, a general sense. So he, this is his last missionary journey. Um, I know it's a little hard to see, but Paul is writing, he's in kind of this pink area of Asia, there's Ephesus on the coast there, and he's writing his letter to Corinth, which is on this yellow, uh, this yellow section over here on the far left side. So Paul's in Ephesus, he's writing to Corinth, and here's the context of Paul's work life at the moment, okay? You think your job is hard, just listen to this. So first of all, Paul, as he writes this letter, has put thousands of miles on his legs at this point, thousands of miles. Now, Stanford University has recently put together something called the Orbis Project, um, and they've used historical data from the first century world, which is where Paul served, <clears throat> in, the, in the Roman world, and they have reconstructed the distance, time, and the approximate cost of ancient travel uh, during Paul's life, and even, even accounting for things like weather and terrain. The, the amount of detail that they put into this database is, is incredible. You should check it out sometime, the Orbis Project. Anyway, someone plugged in all of Paul's missionary journeys into this system and came up with this. After two missionary journeys, Paul has walked, donkeyed, or sailed about 4,500 miles. 4,500 miles. And traveled for 150 days. That's just travel. 150 days. Now keep in mind that outside of travel time, Paul worked as a tent maker. He was an entrepreneur. A full-time in pretty much every city that he visited and stayed in. He, and on top of that, he planted churches. And on top of that, he preached almost daily. Second of all, when Paul mentions here that he wants to stay in Ephesus in verses 8 and 9, that God is opening a door despite many adversaries, what Paul says, Luke, we, we know what he's talking about. Luke tells us the story of, of the, the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 19. And there are Paul's work. It's so effective that he's hurting the local economy. Because the, 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 they're not buying, people aren't buying idols from the metal workers anymore. So those guys get together, they start a riot. And the way Luke tells it, Paul and his friends are moments away from death, from a rioting crowd, before God intervenes, right, in, in the strangest way possible through this town clerk. And I, I thought about that this week as government intervention at its finest. So this town clerk <laughs> saves their lives. It's a crazy story. You should, you should check it out. In the midst of all of that, okay, you, all that, keep that in your mind. In the midst of all of that, this Corinthian church sends a delegation with his letter to Paul. And he alludes to it throughout 1 Corinthians. He's replying to this letter. And it's not a nice letter. 
It's a hard letter. And whatever else it said, it said something like this. Hey, Paul, we think you're a terrible apostle. And we aren't sure that we like you at all. And by the way, you're a bad preacher. We, we would rather have Apollos. And that's what they said. Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? In the midst of everything else that's going on in Paul's life. I mean, really think about that. Someone calling into question your entire life's work in one letter and you get it at the wrong place at the wrong time. But for Paul, it didn't matter. It's all worth it. And for the other people and the partners that he mentions here, Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achasus, it's worth it for all of them because despite everything, God is still at work. They are convinced. Paul is working so hard, he's killing himself, but God raises him from the dead daily. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians. That's, that's the idea. We aren't apostles, okay? Thank goodness. <laughs> but we are called to work hard for a messy church, just like Paul. So how might Paul call us to the same today? Well, I think he would say something like this, and I'll tell you where I'm getting this from. I think he would say, choose courage, not comfort. Choose courage. It takes courage to serve. It takes courage to love well. It takes courage to let people in, to let strangers in. It takes courage to share Jesus with people who are hostile to him and are hostile to you. And yet how often I run to what's comfortable. How often I choose the easy over the good. Paul is talking to me in verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. Now these are all basically military images, okay? Protect, defend, stand firm, act like men. No offense, ladies. That's not what he meant. But we say stuff like this today, right? We kind of say man up, same idea. You see, all of these imply a courage that we must have. It's an inner resolve when the world around us is a mess. And this is, think of, this is how soldiers train. Soldiers don't train to prepare and work for a clean battle plan. No, they train for the mess. They train for when everything goes wrong. They train for the fog of war. That's what Paul is calling us to do. Church and the Christian life in general, it's going to be messy. Okay? It, it just will be. But we need to have courage, keep courage in the midst of that. And Paul has to tell us this, okay? I'm glad he tells us this because our tendency is to drift. Our tendency is to drift, to compromise on what we know to be true. I just got an email last week from someone whose boss is encouraging them to do uh, what he perceives as something immoral or unethical. And he's, you know, he's, what do I do in this moment? And some of you are there right now. Your, your peers are pressuring you. Your finances are pressuring you to compromise on something that you know you shouldn't do. But even if it's not something, even just the busyness and inertia of life can do this to you. Okay, our tendency is to drift, so hold firm to the faith, stand fast. How do we do that? Two quick thoughts. We need community to do this well, so get in a community group. They're launching in the fall. If you haven't tried one yet, do that. Number two, read the Bible daily. Read the Bible daily. It keeps us grounded. If you haven't ever tried Open here, it's a Bible reading plan that we've put together. There are lots more you can do, but if you're looking for one today, right now, there are bookmarks out in our lobby. You can go pick one up right now. Read this Bible every day. And I can tell you that even as a church, just institutionally, we are trying to think this through and work for this. This isn't, 
meant, what I'm about to say, this isn't meant as an alarmist statement, but I think it's fairly obvious that we're living in a culture that is changing radically and very quickly and has less and less to do with a biblical worldview. Now, that's to be expected, and that's not new in the history of the church at all, but churches will be tempted to drift. You already see it. And as a church, we need to be intentional to hold fast to the truth. And part of the, one of the ways we're trying to do that, I just want to let you know, as a church uh, in Kansas City, uh, is not only teaching God's word on Sunday as best we can, but partnering with Trinity Seminary uh, in Chicago as an extension site for them here at Christ Community Church. Now, Trinity is my alma mater. It's where I did my pastoral training. Uh, it's, it's shaped my life in so many ways. I would not be here, seriously, without Trinity, and it's one of the, I mean, it's, it's globally considered one of the best seminaries that holds true to the faith. Now they're coming to Kansas City, and they're coming to Christ's community, and you can go to our website and learn more. I took a quick screenshot just so you see that. This is on our website. We're starting with one class this fall, and, and we're doing another one in the winter, and, and this, is, this is Christ's community's gift to the church of Kansas City, to, to the leaders, believers, pastors in this city to help us all stand firm for what we know to be true. We can't drift because it's comfortable. We must fight to choose the truth, to choose courage, because it's worth working for. It's worth working for, and it's worth giving to. This is our second point for Paul. Despite all of her flaws, the church is worth giving to. And this is another point that Paul makes in this chapter. We skipped over uh, verse 1 to give a little more context, but jump back to verse 1. In chapter 16, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, then then they will accompany me. Stop there. So we talked earlier about Paul's third missionary journey. That's kind of the context. Speaking of Paul's hard work, part one of the major enterprises for Paul on this last missionary journey was a collection, a financial collection of the Gentile churches, the, the, the churches he's planted to give to the Jerusalem church, which were mostly Jewish Christians who were suffering tremendously. Uh, we know that in the, in the 40s, uh, uh, there was a famine in Jerusalem. It devastated the city and the region. And the church there was doing the best it could to to serve its own members as well as the poor in the city, and they don't have a lot of money. Frankly, the Gentile churches that Paul planted were always wealthier than the the Jerusalem church. So Paul is collecting money in all these cities, Corinth and others, across the empire to bring a benevolence collection to the church that's in Jerusalem. Now, this was a very controversial strategy for Paul. Frankly, one of the things that angered the Jews the most about Paul, it wasn't just his teaching on Jesus as Messiah, it was about his bringing Jews and Gentiles together. In in some ways, that may have been more what got him killed in the end. It was this brazen partnership between Jews and Gentiles. People didn't like that. They did not like them worshiping together. They did not like them eating together. They did not like them giving to one another. Now, for our purposes here, I just want to point out one thing. This church that Paul's asking to give is incredibly spiritually immature. I think that much is obvious. 
They're sleeping with prostitutes. The wives are telling husbands that they're not supposed to have sex anymore. People are denying the resurrection of Christ. They're interrupting each other in the middle of church service. This list, it goes on and on and on. There are so many things Paul should focus on, right? Before he asks them to give financially. I mean, that's like the last chapter in the pastoral training handbook. It's like <laughs> Jesus, then grace, then Trinity, and then, da, da, da. okay, now you talk about financial giving, but Paul doesn't operate that way. In the midst of everything else going on here, he asks the church to continue to give. He basically says, I'm still planning to swing by and pick up this collection that we talked about, so don't forget, get on it. Because for Paul, giving and stewarding financial wealth was as essential to the church as prayer, as worship, as fellowship, as instruction. As any other basic for church that we have, it's as basic as donut holes is giving to the church. <laughs> right? Paul literally says, when you gather on the first day of the week, which in the Jewish calendar was Sunday, put some money aside. Everyone, everyone, rich, poor, young, old, everyone, as he may prosper. Basically, in accordance with your prosperity for the week. And so just as Paul would say that we should, out of devotion to God, worship and study and pray on Sunday, we should also give. They're, they're on the same level here. So no matter where we are or we think we are in terms of our spiritual maturity, and even if we're struggling in the messiness of the church, the church is worth giving to. Now, I'm not saying we should be dumb about it. Here's what I mean by that. This doesn't mean we should give to whatever church, even if they're not trustworthy. Even Paul lays out some basic accountability in his approach to this collection. He says, he, essentially, he says, anyone that you want to carry your money, that's fine. I'll write a letter so that they can go to the Jerusalem church and they'll know who they are. If you want me to go with them, great, let me know. Just let me know. It's your, it's your plan. But the church is worth giving to. So we should strive to be givers, not takers. Strive to be givers, not takers. We should all be contributing to our church, no matter who we are or how much we have. We can give of our time and our talent, our expertise, and yes, we can give of our treasure, our money. Now, honestly, Christ community, you guys are one of the most generous churches on this, seriously. We brag on you guys about this all the time. This is a sign of real spiritual growth and maturity for you, seriously. But we can all, we can all get better at this, so let's spend, let's spend some time here. If you have questions about giving and you haven't started giving yet, Paul's very practical here. So it's a regular discipline, it's weekly, it's monthly, whatever, it's of giving to the church. This money goes to, here at Christ Community, goes to our Benevolence fund that we use to help those who need it, whether they're part of the congregation or they're our neighbors. Uh, it supports our partners, our partnerships who do amazing work in the city and around the world. You've, you learned about one this morning in Crystal Ray. It also goes to fund church planting, like our new fifth campus in Shawnee, which is going really well, by the way. And this is for the work of the church. This, we all, if you're a member here, we all approve where this money goes together every September at our congregational meeting. I wanted to share one quick story. Uh, one of our partners, Mission Adelante in, in Kansas City, Kansas, they serve immigrant populations uh, in that region and, and they teach English and connect them with resources and, and do church planting. And uh, they wanted to build uh, some facilities, some housing for interns that they would like to equip for the ministry in the city. And because of your generosity as a church, we were able to invest with them in that housing and get the project done well ahead of schedule, which saved a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of money. 
And some of you here, you're nodding along with me because you, you helped with this. You were involved. You gave of your time. You gave of your talent. You gave of your treasure to make this happen. And so Sarah, who's on staff at Mission Alante, she wrote this email back. And I just wanted to share it. She said, I cannot thank you enough for your partnership in this project. As you know, I didn't walk into this project expecting to serve as the general contractor. <laughs> Poor girl. Um, <laughs> But I am grateful beyond words for the ways it has taught me about God's character, his provision, his gentleness, and his working through people in community. I've learned a thing or two about load-bearing walls, energy codes, and the proper way to trim out a window. <laughs> you, Christ community, were the medium of so many of those lessons. I personally, and Mission Adelante corporately, thank you for your generosity of finances, of time, of expertise, of professional connections, of prayer, and most importantly, of relationship. Stuff like that is worth giving to. Things like the Crystal Ray linens and backpacks, the work that they're doing, is worth giving to. And when we give as a church, not just as individuals, when we give together as a church, we are much more effective in how we do it, and we get to celebrate together being a part of God's plan. If you're ready to start giving but you don't know how, try 10% of your income. There's nothing special about that number, really, but it's a good number to start with. If that's too much, then, then go lower. I mean, something is better than nothing. And try to grow. Try to grow. As you increase, your giving should increase. That's, that's Paul's point. As you increase, your giving increases. The church is worth giving to. Paul thought so. He's giving to the church in Jerusalem, even though most of his enemies in his ministry came from Jerusalem. And he even confronted uh, Peter to his face on how he was running the Jerusalem church in the book of Galatians. Even He knows the church is a mess. They're not perfect either, but he, they're still worth giving to, to him. And the final point here, final point that you can't miss from Paul, the church is worth loving. The church is worth loving. You could summarize really this entire, this whole letter with, with that main point. Okay, Paul basically does that in verse 14. He says, let everything you do, everything you do, be done in love. And if this church could simply follow, to, to strive to follow that command, they would not be having the trouble that they're having. They wouldn't be quarreling in the name of their own leaders, chapters 1 to 3. Uh, they wouldn't be questioning Paul's leadership, chapters 4 and 9. They wouldn't be suing each other, chapter 6. They wouldn't be divorcing each other, chapter 7. They wouldn't abuse their weaker members, chapters 8 through 10. They wouldn't abuse the poor among them at the Lord's table, chapter 11. They wouldn't worship so selfishly and use their gifts so selfishly, chapters 12 to 14. If they would just devote themselves, all that they do, to do it in love. We wouldn't even have this letter at all. But instead, as we've said throughout, this church has taken, I'm sorry, has been motivated by pride. Not love, but pride. And that makes the way Paul ends his letter here so interesting to me. If you remember, in the beginning, the church was dividing around specific leaders. You know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. These are all just, they're just dividing around the big names of the early church. That's all that they're doing. So, so Paul, Paul, on the other hand, only mentions a few names in this letter. He mentions Phoebe. Uh, in the beginning of the letter, he mentions Stephanus here, as well as Fortunatus and Achasus and Aquila and Prissa. And Paul lifts up these folks as examples to follow. He says, give them recognition to these men and women. Now, what is not readily apparent to the modern reader 
is that listed here among Paul's heroes are two women, which in the ancient world, you didn't do that, and two former slaves, Fortunatus and Acasus. These are slave names. These are people at the bottom of the social totem pole, but what set them apart for Paul was their love made manifest in service to the church. And whatever headache Paul gets from this church, these leaders that have come to him with their letter, they get more. So we're pretty sure Stephanus is an elder at the Corinthian church. And I can just imagine Stephanus saying, Paul, all you have to do is write this letter. I've got to go take it back and own whatever you say with these people. Right? But he goes back, even though it's a mess. You see, the Corinthians heroes, they are all about pride. Paul's heroes were all about love. You see the difference? The people Paul lifts up, they love the church with everything they've got, even when it goes unnoticed. And he says, give recognition to these people. So grow in love, not in pride. Grow in love, not pride. Our love should be growing, not our pride. And so often, I'm afraid in the church, the opposite happens. The longer you're in church, the more prideful you can become, the more cynical you can become, the more opinionated you can become, the more bitter you can become, and suddenly you have so little love for the thing that Paul loved so much and that Jesus still loves so much. So can we, after a series like this, can we love the church until it hurts like Paul did? And as Christ does. Because whatever pain this church has caused Paul, and it's considerable, we've looked at that, it has hurt Jesus much, much more. That's always the way this works. Our mistakes, as much as they hurt those around us, and and they do, they always hurt God the most. But he loves his church anyway, mess and all. And if God can use a church like Corinth, what do you think he can do with a church like ours? I was reminded of what he can do several weeks ago when I met with a new family here at our campus and I, I asked them if I could share this story. I, I, I met with them and said, you know, what, what made you decide to come here? And then they said, we met some people at work who go here. And the way they talked about their faith and lived it out in their workplace, we'd never seen anything like that before. And we realized we didn't have that. Whatever they have, we didn't have. But we want it. So we came here to check it out and and, and learn more. God is working here. He is. And all over the world. He is creating something so beautiful, so astounding, that the gates of hell can never overcome her, even, even when tragedy strikes. Even when hate knocks on her doors and spends an hour at a prayer meeting and then slays nine of our brothers and sisters. And how does the church respond when that happens? They go to the courtroom and through tears and weeping, staring at the accused, they say with a love that I, don't, that I can't even comprehend, I forgive you. Choose Jesus, they said to this young man. He is the only hope for you. That's the That is the church we work for. That's the church we are giving everything to. This is the church we can love so dearly. This is what makes it all worth it. Are you with me? Let's pray.
Father, we are so thankful for the gift of your church. You love the church not because we are beautiful, but you love us to make us beautiful. God, give us the strength and the grace and the patience to love the church, to love our church, this one right here, even when it hurts, even when it's hard, and even when it disappoints. And as your church, we pause now to pray for your brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Charleston. We are overwhelmed with sorrow over this act of pure evil and injustice, and we cry out, how long, O Lord, until your justice prevails? Yes, we are overwhelmed with sorrow, but you use your church to overwhelm the world with grace such that your love for them would overflow in the forgiveness of their enemies at Emmanuel Church. There is no more beautiful picture of the gift of your grace in Christ than that. May our brothers and sisters continue to cling to your son in their grief and their sorrow and their confusion. You are near to them and you proved it in the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. May we, your church, continue to pursue justice with the grace and love as our brothers and sisters in Emmanuel have done. And we ask, as Paul did thousands of years ago, and the way he ended this letter to the Corinthians, we echo, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.